Welcome to the director's cut of Policy, Guns and Money. In this special episode, Michael Shoebridge talks to Aspie's executive director, Peter Jennings, on the disruptive year of 2018 and how it sets the scene for 2019. I thought it'd be a good chance just before Christmas to look back at the year and look a little bit ahead at 2019. Yeah, find out who's been naughty and who's been nice, Michael. Who deserves presents, mm. yeah. Mm. So I, I was looking at the last year and it's been a big year in national security internationally. So starting with uh, the US putting out their national defence strategy uh, in January and then the Skripal poisoning in the UK in March. Um, new Secretary of State in the US um, after Tillerson got sacked in March. New National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, a Kim-Trump summit in June. Uh, US tariffs on China in July and more to come. And then a whole bunch of big decisions out of the Australian government over the year too. Mm. So just picking anything out of that, what do you think were the trends? I, I think there have been some about the Australian government's China policy, but I think also there's been a, a sort of gripping up of US policy on China. Well, Michael, it's been uh, a, a year of disruptions, which I don't think uh, too many strategists would have picked um, 12 months ago. Uh, if anything, I think there's a, a common theme of more and more challenges to the rules-based international order, uh, which is one of these things that the less we have of it, the more we seem to talk about it and, and the more we, we miss it. For me, what I would point to as being um, sort of themes of uh, 2018 has been um, the consolidation of the Trump presidency. You know, a lot of us expected that perhaps what would happen is that Trump would emerge as... Uh, a more traditional Republican president. He'd be moderated uh, by everybody around him. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, in a sense, uh, all of those jobs would get filled and that somehow that would turn Trump less into a campaigner and more to a president. And, and clearly that's not happened. Uh, I, I mean, I think we now see that the failure to fill a lot of those administration jobs was quite deliberate. Um, it was about consolidating power within the White House, keeping people unstable as the sort of Trump tactic. But in some ways, um, although Trump has been um, probably disastrous in Europe, he's been quite good in Asia. Um, he's, uh, you know, pursued an aggressive um, trade war, so-called with China, which uh, at the core is really about trying to prevent um, Chinese theft of intellectual property from the American business community. And I think it's a positive thing that what, what Trump has done is that he's worried the Chinese and that's leading them to, in some respects, moderate their behaviour in the South China Sea and elsewhere. Mm. Do you think he's kind of, he's surprised America as well as China? Because uh, my thought about it is the tariffs, they weren't part of a big concerted plan, but a plan has slowly risen around that. And I'm thinking of you know the speeches that Vice President Pence has made, which retrofitted a bigger American agenda and around that high technology competition with China. Yeah, I mean, there's there's at any time there's there's at least two things going on in Washington D.C. There's Trump and the chaos of the the White House, uh, really the West Wing, uh, the sort of small group of people that are around the president day by day, and then there's the broader part of the American administration. And what, what's happened in the intelligence community, uh, in the Pentagon, the, the National um, Security Council has been, 
I think the arrival of a largely bipartisan view that China is the number one problem. Now, that, that was not true 12 months ago. I, I think if you spoke to that group back then or those people back then, what, what they would have said is Russia was the, the principal strategic problem. Uh, but uh, since Mike Pence gave that speech at the Hudson Institute at the beginning of October, what, what you can see is that broader administration the thing that Trump calls the swamp, in fact, mm. um, has has really decided that China is, you know, the number one long-term strategic problem for the US on a whole bunch of fronts, from intellectual property theft through to traditional espionage to trade policy. So um, can you can you see a deal being done by Trump? Because he's a man who loves deals. Uh, I can imagine a deal on things like agriculture, uh, cars, and some kind of services, but I can't see. President Xi of China changing direction on those core state policies around high technology. Well, uh, the the question is: so how how much has Trump signed up to the broader bipartisan New American China strategy? Uh, and uh, as always, I think the answer is well, about fifty percent. You know, there there are parts of the strategy which cross areas that Trump is personally interested in. So, you know, we, we know for 20 years he's been talking about unfair trade balances that mm. have to be fixed. Uh, we know he's been an advocate for tariffs for, for that length of time. To the extent that the strategy addresses those things, I think Trump's up for it. But there are also indications that he might be able to walk from it or prepared mm. to walk from it. Um, if it helps him to cut a deal with President Xi. And, and more than anything else, you know, Trump is for cutting deals. That's what he, mm. I deals think, Deals with big numbers attached to them. Yeah. So if he can get an opening of the auto industry and sell a whole lot more soybeans and there's a number that's got billions at the end of it, that sounds like a deal he might want to do. It, it, what does that do to this strategic competition that we're seeing? Well, it leaves it, I think, um, vulnerable to the uncertainties of the White House. Uh, so, for example, if the Justice Department, with the cooperation of Canada, is prepared to arrest Ms Ming, the, the mm. CFO of uh, Huawei, and extradite her to the United States, well, maybe Trump will just jump into the centre of that to cut a deal with Xi, saying, well, will let one of your elite mm. go well, free. And he's already undercut another action against ZTE, that the, the other big Chinese telco, yes. which was which broke sanctions on Iran and was at risk of going out of business if they couldn't buy US supplies of semiconductors. That, that, Trump that's right. Uh, gave that up to get the summit with Kim Jong-un. Yeah. So I, I guess what that means is that there is no policy um, so consistent that it can't be broken by President Trump in the interests of cutting a deal with um, a global autocrat because they seem to be his favourite bunch mm. of uh, folks. Um, and all that points to really is more uncertainty as we move into 2019. How, how is China dealing with this? Well, I, I think, um, as I said, uh, I think she is worried. I think the Chinese look for consistency when it comes to dealing with American administrations, and they don't have that. Mm. And they've um, been very confident in dealing with past US presidents because they have been so consistent and predictable. Yes, yes. Well, I'm reminded of uh, a comment Chairman Mao made about Richard Nixon not long after the opening, and uh, Mao said to uh, uh, Cho Enlai, he said, oh, I like rightists, uh, referring to the American Republicans because at least you know where they come from. Well, you can't say that about President Trump. 
So, um, but that uncertainty factor has actually, I think, been quite useful in, in bringing about some pauses in uh, Chinese bad behaviour, which worries the rest of the Asia-Pacific. Mm. I was struck by APEC, actually, if you're thinking about it from uh, General Secretary Xi's point of view. There was a lot of speculation it was going to be a coming out parade for China in the world to show that China really had all the momentum and that everybody wanted uh, a bigger and bigger piece of, of China in the world. But what seemed to happen at the APEC summit was the opposite. Uh, yes, there were still lots of lovely photo opportunities between President Xi and various South Pacific leaders who recognised China, but the big initiatives that came out of it weren't Chinese. In fact, they weren't just American. They were examples of partnerships. It was uh, the US, Australia, Japan and New Zealand that had all the momentum there. So mm. how do you think Xi's feeling when he looks out at the world? Is he surprised by the growing reaction around things like his Belt and Road Initiative and the use of Chinese military power? Well, I think um, there was a thought in China that if Trump was going to disengage from the international community, that, that President Xi could step into that. And we saw that in, at an early Davos mm. meeting where Xi was championing free trade, even though I don't think that's actually a good description of, of uh, China's uh, trade policy. Um, and so APEC was really interesting. Um, on on the, the one hand, we had diplomats sort of wringing their hands that a final communique could not be signed. Um, I, I personally think that was because unusually for APEC, too many substantive things were actually being agreed in the sidelines of the meeting. And most of those substantive things were about the democracies, um, you know, Australia, the US, Japan, um, even New Zealand, um, uh, sort of coming forward to offer the Pacific region development opportunities that don't involve signing up to Belt and Road. Um, now, again, I think that gives China room to be cautious. Uh, it, it's probably too early to call it this way, but my own sense is that the wheels are beginning to fall off the Belt and Road strategy. Uh, if you look at a place like uh, Sri Lanka, where um, there, there was the story of the Hambantota port that was built with Chinese soft money that the Sri Lankan government couldn't repay, so China uh -huh. took control of the port. Yep. And you've got the Maldives with maybe $3 billion of debt, which for a small island state is pretty much unpayable. Yes, uh, Tonga, I think, in the same category in the South Pacific. So everywhere you look, uh, the, the downsides of Belt and Road start to mm. become more obvious. Now, now, here's the problem. This is Xi Jinping's number one signature strategy. Mm. It's, it's his personal authority that's associated with Belt and Road. So if that starts to go wrong, it's going to start to impact on his own personal grip on authority in, in Beijing. So again, that's another reason for China to um, mm. leave 2018 worried. Xi needs a new narrative really, doesn't he? Because he's so used to saying, hey, China, it's all win-win, join the Belt and Road and rivers of gold will come your way. He hasn't actually been able to address the problems that people have seen or even the obvious security implications of things like handing over control of a port. He hasn't had anything to say about that. And so that, that narrative of it's all economics and it's all upside, I think is something that he knows he needs to rethink. But he's kind of stuck because he's made such a, such a thing about the China dream yes. in the world. I, look, I wonder if he does have that 
realisation. Uh, I mean, I, th I think one of the problems with um, Xi's um, assumption of complete personal control is that he's lost that group of people that might be able to provide frank and fearless advice to him. Uh, because, you know, there, there is no authority other than Xi Jinping authority in China now in the military and the economic sphere. You know, I reflect, Michael, in, in the time I was in the Defence Department, the, the two most senior Chinese generals that I dealt with in uh, bilateral negotiations are now behind bars. Uh, they were Zhang Zemin supporters. They've been purged from the PLA, as all Zhang um, supporters have. So where is Xi getting that contrary advice from, if, if indeed um, he's, he's getting it from anywhere? That This is another problem of one-person autocratic rule. Mm. And domestically, he has to project success and power internationally as well. Yeah. So shifting would be very hard for him to do. Yeah. Well, here I think the risk for the region is that it's easy to retreat to nationalism and, and in a sense um, one sees that uh, as a very dominant feature of Chinese popular support for island construction in the South China Sea. Uh, we've had some very interesting material uh, being written on the Aspie Strategist site about Chinese popular movies, which oh. is some um, sort of triumphing the the international role of the People's Liberation Army, for example, in in sort of action type films. I, I do think that there is a risk that if the Chinese economy slows, if Belt and Road starts to fail, if relations with America is bad, um, what do you do? Well, um, you sort of flick the switch mm. to nationalism mm. and get the population riled up by, you know, the potential for conflict overseas as a, as a way of distracting well, attention from maybe domestic problems. Um, a limited conflict in the South China Sea, maybe it's a Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, there are plenty of flashpoints where that could happen. Yes. Well, those popular movies I've been talking about, a number of the plots have revolved around rescuing Chinese nationals from uh, sort of CIA-backed operations in mm. the Middle East, that type of thing. And, and, and again, I think this is all about sort of a, a particularly 19th century form of nationalism, which we've rather forgotten about in the mm. democratic West, but which is quite a motivating factor in, in sort of North but Asia. I get the feeling there's a lot of overconfidence in the PLA and a lot of restiveness you know, they've, had, they've had all this investment, they've built all these new capabilities. There's, there's a part of the PLA that wants to show what they can do and that could play very nastily into that nationalistic stream that you're talking about. Yeah, there's a rather famous discussion that happened at uh, this year's uh, Shangri-La dialogue where a Chinese uh, three-star general talked about how eager he was to be able to see the PLA's capabilities tested in combat and, uh, you know, people kind of like uh, raised their eyebrows in the room uh, at the time of that conversation because, you know, that, that is an indication of a, of a military force that's perhaps more overconfident than they should be. Mm. So if we're looking at 2019 and thinking about uh, Australian policy, and there have been a set of good decisions taken, I think, over this year, the Pacific Pivot Package that you've talked about, the big decision on 5G, excluding the two big Chinese telcos from that, and making sure that 100% of Australia's East Coast gas distribution isn't in Chinese ownership. But all of those decisions have been taken almost behind the scenes without the word China being able to be spoken. When I look at next year with the election, probably May, who knows? Mm. Both sides have said they support those decisions, but they've both been very circumspect about 
telling the Australian public what their actual policy is on China. Yes. How do you think that might develop? Well, uh, you know, Michael, if I just at risk of sounding like a columnist for the for the Saturday newspaper, which I'm unlikely ever to be, I mean, what I think our government lacks is a, is a compelling narrative on how to talk about China publicly. Uh, and so what we're getting is this very um, schizophrenic approach between, on the one hand, some very sensible policy decisions being taken. And you're quite right, I agree with that, both at the end of the Turnbull Prime Ministership and during the early months of uh, Scott Morrison's uh, time. But uh, a complete unwillingness or uncertainty about how, how can we talk about this publicly. And um, I think that's a, there's a danger in that. Uh, it says to me that Australian governments are struggling to work out how to sell good policy. And um, why is that a problem? Well, because it means that uh, although the federal government might have worked out the risks that are presented by China, that's not um, how the state governments think about it. No. It's not how the universities well, think about we it. We saw that in the Victorian election with the, the secret BRI memorandum of understanding that turned out not to be so secret after all. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think for a lot of the states, um, it's the, the rivers of gold is the story that they're still mm. thinking about. And, and here's the problem is that, you know, premiers' offices don't have people that are reading classified intelligence. They don't have access to this material. They just see the upside of trade uh, rather than the risks of um, espionage or covert interference or, you know, some of the negatives of, uh, of dealing with China. And so, um, you know, for whichever government emerges out of the 2019 federal election, I, I, I think a key challenge for them is how do we talk about China in ways which doesn't, you know, bring down the economic shutters mm. but still asserts Australia's national security interests um, because that's what our federal government has to do. Yes, and I think the decisions have... Sh the, the Chinese reaction to those big decisions have shown that this idea that we are dependent on China economically is not true because it's a mutual dependence. And China needs those high-quality natural resources and the high-quality education services. So that is the reason, in my view, that reaction hasn't been the kind of thing that some policymakers might have feared. Yeah. Also, I think there's a very smart Chinese judgment that being punitive to Australia would do them damage amongst oh. other developed uh, countries. So, for example, the, the Huawei story, uh, I think, is one of the most interesting stories of 2018 oh. because not only in Australia but Japan, India, New Zealand, who even would have British it, Telecom in even the UK, BT in the UK have now all decided that yes, there are serious security concerns oh. associated with having Huawei equipment in in the 5G mobile network. And um, I, I think that um, China's real concern was not so much about the, the, their position in 5G well, here, it was about this contagion effect. Broader global market, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, in that sense, Australia's perhaps been ahead of the pack, but also doing what is necessary to do if a country wants to protect the security of its communications. I suppose the last thing I thought we might touch on quickly is that simple issue of uh, the defence program of investment in Australia and the budget. I mean, my thought is that 2% commitment is strong on both sides of politics, but I'm wondering if it's, if it's going to be enough because I look at that massive investment program, $200 billion over 10 years in the 2016 white paper, and then I look at the changes in the world since 2016 to now, 
both technological, but more importantly, in our strategic environment. Mm. All that uh, reinvestment into the South Pacific, that really the Pacific pivot has just begun. It, it hasn't finished. That's a rolling mall mm. of new demands and work, probably needing to grow real partnerships with our Southeast Asian partners, Indonesia, Singapore being in, in that bucket. The list of new demands seems to be growing. Do you think 2% is going to be enough? And how, how difficult a year do you think it might be for the defence organisation given some of those emerging pressures? I think the, the big challenge for defence policy is that although we've probably done as good a job as any country could to design the shape of its defence force for 2035, we haven't really thought hard enough about what we need the, the current defence force to be able to do in 2019 or, or 2020. Every defence white paper's got to sort of balance future investment with the current realities of where the world is going. And really what 2018 tells us is that our strategic situation is getting worse and getting worse a lot more quickly than was anticipated in the 2016 oh. Defence White Paper, which I was involved in. Uh, so where that takes us, Michael, is it's time for a new Defence White Paper. I, I think whichever government is elected in May, uh, one of its early commitments in defence should be to say, right now, we're going to produce another Defence White Paper, not, not in two years, but maybe in 12 months. The future investment profile is mostly okay, although there are details that one can talk about. It's the current shape of the Defence Force and its fitness for operations in the next 12 to 24 months that we have to worry about. Mm. So I think the next white paper should be quite different from um, the last half dozen in terms of really saying how, do, how are we positioning ourselves for the crisis that might happen next year. I'm reminded of Tony Blair's line when he was going for re-election, one of those multiple times that he did. His core pitch to the UK people um, was, we have come so far, but we still have so far to travel. Well, let's hope we don't have a sexed up white paper document of the type that uh, uh, prevailed in uh, the UK in 2003 at the time of the uh, Iraq invasion. What's needed is uh, a bit of sober common sense here and, you know, a recognition that no white paper is ever going to get things completely right. But I figure if a government starts one in 2019 and we have the outcome in 2020, that's not in... Uh, out of sorts with what you might normally expect, having produced one at the beginning of 2016. And um, just on your spending point, um, yeah, I, I think that we'll come back to look at the debates of the last few years, saying that reaching 2% of gross national product is as much as we should spend. And we'll look at that time and think, how did we think we could get away with such a small amount of money being spent on defence? Um, and that's all because of the nature of the strategic environment that we face. Mm, yeah, well, thanks, Peter. I think even with those things we can see in 2019, uh, I'd go back to your starting point, which is, and yet when we look at what's happened over this year, we can definitely expect more of that uncertainty and more of those surprises next year. And you know, an early one will be the Brexit um, outcome. Next year looks like a really good one for Aspie to do a whole lot of rather difficult work. So thanks very much. You're welcome, Michael. 2019 will be the gift that keeps on giving for strategic think tanks all around the world. That's all for this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money, and it's also a wrap for us for 2018. 
thank you so much for listening. We've had a great time, but would also really appreciate your feedback. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a tweet at aspi underscore org. We'll be back in the new year. So in the meantime, have a wonderful holidays and a happy new year.